Welcome back, perfect peeps, to Perfect Dad Dev. Today we have Chris Biscardi. Hello, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. And we are going to talk about this new workshop Chris is putting on called Learn to Build Reliable and Efficient Software in Rust. Is that an accurate description, a workshop? Yeah, it's a, it's a series of like about eight workshops right now. Um, a couple are coming towards the end of this year, and most of them have been produced already. So, yeah. So before I get too crazy far ahead of myself, um, I need to know what the heck Rust is because, you know, I, I know it's a programming <laughs> language, but outside of that, I only know what Fireship Dev did 100 seconds on. So, <laughs> yeah, Rust is like, um, it's interesting to describe Rust because historically it's been described to C developers, right? Like it's memory safe, it's a systems programming language, all these words that like mean things to people who write C, right? Um, like memory safety. Like people who write JavaScript have never had to worry <laughs> about memory safety. So like you say that and they're like, uh, okay. It's like cool, um, sounds safe. Yeah, <laughs> cool story, <laughs> tell it again. Um, and like, uh, so yeah, Rust is a general purpose programming language like JavaScript. It does a lot of the things that JavaScript does. Um, it can go in the browser, although I prefer to still use JavaScript for like web UI and stuff like that. But these days, all of the things that I write that are like CLIs or serverless functions or um, even games and things like that uh, are all written in Rust for me. So that's what I would say Rust is. <laughs> Can you help me understand um, what that means as far as you could run it in the browser? How does What does that look like? Is that like a WASM thing? Or? Yeah, so Rust has one of the most advanced like um, compiled WASM implementations uh, around. So basically you would write Rust. Uh, JavaScript is like an FFI kind of thing with WASM, right? So you write Rust, it compiles to WASM, it interacts with the JavaScript APIs in the browser. Uh, and you can do cool, interesting things with that. Um, but typically, you don't really like need Wasm for ninety percent of what the average like UI engineer is doing, right? Like you're not going to write um, your next Svelte component or React component or whatever in Wasm and just like slap it into the middle of your whatever app <laughs> and <laughs> be like ah performance now. Um, but like if you're doing like really large pivot tables or something like that, you could write um, like the the data streaming implementation in Rust and ship that to Wasm and run it in the browser or something like that. But you said something really interesting is that you can use it in serverless functions. And I saw that Netlify mm -hmm. is adding that functionality where you can write your serverless functions in Rust in a, is that in a JavaScript framework? You could do that and then write your serverless function in Rust and ship it to Netlify? Yeah, so there are two ways that you can basically get uh, Rust to run on Netlify. One is like you can write it... Um, and kind of like embed it in JavaScript in two, one of two ways. One of them is as like a native extension. If you've heard of like an API or um, approaches like that, like if you've ever had a problem with sharp, that's a native extension. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, there are better APIs and new APIs and stuff, but that, that's the idea behind that. And then you could also compile it to Wasm, embed the Wasm in the JavaScript and run that. Um, but they recently launched like native support, like full support for actual Rust and binaries. So like you can now compile your Rust application as you would normally um, to a binary and just ship that as a serverless function. That is super cool. 
So I think Netlify functions run on AWS Lambda under the hood, right? Yes, that's true. So that that kind of checks one more off my uh, list of things to check. I'm wondering if uh, Google Cloud and, and Azure um, are keeping pace with the same thing in Rust. Yeah, so typically the support for Rust and things like serverless functions comes through the like binary support. Um, so languages like Go and other compiled languages all compile to binaries. Those binaries run on basically the same runtimes. So there's like some... Amazon, Linux, whatever, whatever, like thing that you run this binary on. You choose that when you go to deploy this binary. Uh, and that's where the like Rust support usually comes from. Gotcha. I know like from what I'm reading and what I remember, um, they have Node.js, Python, Go, Java, .NET, Ruby, PHP. That's, that's kind of what I'm reading on uh, GCP's website as far as what their mm -hmm. cloud functions are written in today. I know you can run a cloud run, so theoretically mm -hmm. you could run anything um, as well under the hood. So that's kind of crazy. So I'm trying to understand as a person who writes a lot of JavaScript TypeScript on the front end um, and all my cloud functions are TypeScript based. Mm -hmm. When would I, I, and I know you mentioned Sharp, but like what, what are good instances <laughs> where I would kind of switch over my and learn a whole new language just to like get a little bit more performance benefit is is like yeah, image so, probably a decent one and maybe like movie streaming or something like that um i haven't personally done any video streaming through serverless functions with rust or something like that so i can't speak to that myself um but what i can say is that if you are running your javascript functions and you're seeing cold starts in the hundreds of milliseconds which is fairly common and you're seeing execution times in, say, the hundreds of milliseconds or something like that. Um, and sometimes not, right? Sometimes they run faster or whatnot, depending yeah. on what you're doing. Um, you can take any of those serverless functions. You can move it to Rust, depending on what you're doing, obviously. And if you're, like, heavily relying on JavaScript-only SDKs or whatever. Um, but you can move it to Rust, and you get immediately off the bat uh, faster cold start times on the order of, like, 25 to 30 milliseconds. Um, compared to hundreds for very similar functions. And then the execution times are like, they start off at one millisecond. <laughs> wow. That's so, crazy. Like you, you get this like really fast performance uh, by default. And then you get to like choose how much you want to layer on top of that. And like what shortcuts you want to take to get your function out or whatever. Right. But uh, yeah. you start off with this like very consistent, like deterministic base profile. Um, of how the function starts and runs, and even the memory usage is multiple times lower from what I've seen in, in uh, production environments. That's incredible. Um, so I, I know I used to work at a shop where everyone was always talking like .NET this and, and core that. All that. I'm not a .NET guy, sorry. <laughs> um, but I'm kind of I'm kind of curious if I were to kind of step into a new language, is there enough support and kind of tooling around Rust where I wouldn't hit many roadblocks at this point? I, I think I read something that Rust started in like 2009. So it's, it's been yeah. around a minute. Yeah, so Rust um, Rust has been stable for quite a while now, right? So okay. the way that Rust works is in editions. There's a 2015 edition, a 2018 edition, and a 2021 edition. Those are the points at which breaking changes can be introduced. So every three years, you may get something that you have to change. Um, but what's really nice and what we don't have in the JavaScript ecosystem, right, 
is the idea that, um, you know how in JavaScript, everybody writes their own little dialect of JavaScript, right? Yeah. And then uh, you never know whether they compiled it to like regular JavaScript or they compiled it to something else and then you have to recompile it or like we've, we've gotten ourselves into a thing there. Um, but in Rustland, if your crate is written in Rust 2015 or 2018 or whatever, uh, it just works. It'll just always compile like that. You can always just say, this crate uses that language version and uh, Cargo handles it for you. So, Is that like nice. Babel? Is Cargo like Babel? For Cargo Babel? is like um, NPM. Okay. And Babel is kind of already built into Rust. Okay. So um, you can write things that are called macros uh, to kind of extend the language in the ways that you would want to extend it. Um, yeah. And that's kind of how we get in trouble with JavaScript is we use different versions of JavaScript and we use Babel to compile that to different versions, right? Yeah, I, I would say that we get ourselves into trouble by not having like a defined way to declare like, hey, I wrote it in this. You should <laughs> compile it like that. Like True. totally missing in <laughs> JavaScript, right? Um, to the point where we end up like, uh, we, we have so many things going on, especially with the ESM CJS transition going on right now. It's a, it's a lot it's of pain fun. in the JavaScript compilation ecosystem. Um, but to the to the point you just made, it's kind of like, yeah, we have Babel, but we also have other things. So we're not even just using the same language transformation like tooling, uh, which is even like even more of a base level. Like if we don't have the standard for how this is supposed to happen, everybody chooses their own. So each version of Rust has a compiler built in and you would use Cargo like you would use NPM and you would install that compiler version and it would compile down to whatever version you selected. So you don't have to like install like another compiler or anything like that. The current version of the Rust compiler knows how to compile like Rust 2015 or something like that. Gotcha. So you only you like you install Rust stable or Rust nightly, whatever, or Rust, whatever. Um, and then it, everything just compiles because Rust is backward compatible that way. Yeah. I'm trying to make all the comparisons over and it's so different. It's a different <laughs> environment that it's hard to make the comparisons, but I yeah, get it's it. like, uh, I, I try to talk pretty loosely about it, uh, especially when talking to people who come from like JavaScript or something like that, because, you know, talking loosely gives them a frame of reference, which is really, really important. And in fact, more important than being like correct. Right. Well, that's interesting, too, because your workshop is built around people who are in the JavaScript ecosystem coming to Rust. So learning yeah. from JavaScript to Rust. So what are some of the things that you would want a JavaScript developer to know or why would they want to switch to come and learn Rust? Uh, because when you so when you write JavaScript is really nice and useful, right? There's so many places you can deploy it. It's so useful for so many things. Um, but when you come down to deploying stuff in production and like wanting the thing that you build to be still running in a year with like lower maintenance cost and like deterministic performance and like things like that, um, I kind of think of like when I want to put something into production, I write it in Rust, right? Uh, and that's not always true, right? Sometimes there's a library in JavaScript that you just like you need and you can't rewrite and you don't have the time, right? So still can deploy JavaScript just fine. Um, but like when I think of what I want my production services to be like, I want them to be 
deterministic in the amount of memory they use. I want them to have low cold start times. I want them to be uh, performant. And when I make changes to the number of allocations my program is making to make it more performant or something like that, I want those to stick around, right? Um, and, you know, in a year when we haven't touched it because we've moved on to other things as a company or whatever, uh, I still want that to like install and run and compile, right? Um, which is something that I've personally had like uh, encountered difficulties with in the past where like I write a JavaScript project and then like next year, all new tooling has come out and, you know, that's not a bad thing. Things are improving, uh, but sometimes you need to put a lot of work into like upgrading all of that tooling at some point. So this will be like code refactoring optimizations that you want for the long haul in an app mm -hmm. that you're running. Okay. Yeah, that would definitely be the way that I like start out thinking about it as a JavaScript developer. Um, and then once you like already know Rust, you can write things at first in Rust. Uh, but to get into it first, think of it more as like, hey, I want like more performance or like, like, what do you want out of Rust? What do you want it to solve? What do you what pains are you feeling? Um, start with that. And then you can expand it to like, hey, now I just I write Rust now. It's really cool. I, I think it's even difficult for people that write front end JavaScript to dive into something like Node, which mm -hmm. syntactically, like it's very similar, the same, if you will, but you just, it's a different flavor of it that you have to get used to. So Brittany, I think it's, yeah, right I now. feel the pain of Node, like every time I write it, it's, it's different and it's like a, it's its own unique thing because it's got the modules that are built in that you don't get in JavaScript. So you have to know some of that going in and it's, mm -hmm. it's almost a different flavor of JavaScript. It's mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. So I, I guess it almost makes sense to me. Like if you're going to have to know just that little bit of a difference or like how to execute node, why not learn rust? And mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be a more performant language. Um, or a more performant, whatever you want to call it, function <laughs> in the back end um, at the end of the day. So it's kind of one of these pivot points that becomes interesting. I'm also curious, though, I think you had mentioned um, V8 engine, right? Like, let's mm -hmm. talk about, could that be rewritten in Rust somehow? And since Chrome's basically running the web these days, we could actually get a version of something Rust-based in the browser in the future? Um, when it comes to V8, the, the way that I think about it is that like V8 is a massive project, right? And V8 yeah. is a massive project and it's had a lot of work put into it and a lot of work put into optimizing how your JavaScript runs in that engine um, and being like, hey, let's rewrite everything in Rust because we think it'll be faster, kind of like, okay, you have this like really established mature piece of software that's had so much work put into it and is like working fairly well for what it does. Um, so do you want to rewrite all of that in Rust? <laughs> that's, you know, that's a huge effort, right? That's yeah. a really big decision. Um, and that's definitely not something that I like advocate for. I'm not like, hey, rewrite everything you have in Rust okay. that's already running and works, right? Um, I would say if you have something that's already running and works, like... If you have a problem with it, if you need more performance or less memory usage or whatever, right, out of it, then think about it. Um, but be sure of what you're, what you're, what problem you're solving. Don't just be like, "Hey, I like Rust now. I'm going to rewrite everything." 
Um, unless you're doing it for fun and then, you know, like write it in whatever you want. But that could right. be a good question too. Like why is Russ so much better at like garbage collection and memory usage and what makes it like, is it the typing? Like what makes it better at doing those things? Yeah. So uh, Rust doesn't have a garbage collector, right? So um, the way that JavaScript runs and is optimized is kind of like uh, you build your JavaScript, right? Um, and then you ship it to the browser or whatever runtime you're using and the runtime will run it. And as it runs it, it will be like, okay, well, this function can be monomorphized or whatever and like optimize it as it runs, right? So you always have to have that kind of like slower invocation first. And then as it runs faster and you run more in a tighter loop, like all of that gets uh, more optimized. Um, and then you have to deal with the uh, garbage collector, like you were just saying, where like the garbage collector has to like go figure out at runtime what memory needs to be freed up at different times, right? Um, which is all great and works pretty well at this point in you know JavaScript and the browser's lifecycle, right? Like we all use it for everything. Um, but what Rust does is it's built the uh, language features that it has around the idea of like who owns what variable this is at what given time, right? Um, and you can like borrow that variable and you can borrow it with like the intention to mutate it or something like that, um, which lets the compiler at compile time uh, sort of deterministically set up all of the places that you're going to need to free memory at all times. Wait, that's interesting because you just said that like you can have a scope, but you can also share that scope. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you can yeah. share variables through different scopes. They're not like block scoped, like JavaScript. Like you can't contain a variable to a scope. You can when you're writing the language. The the thing that I was trying to get at is kind of like when you have a variable and you want somebody else to like only read it, for example, like you can look at okay. this like a child sharing his toys, right? Like, hey, you can look at this, but it's mine. Okay. Right? You, you can't touch it. You don't, you're not going to break this. Um, the compiler so can enforce object. that. Object-oriented programming, like how you have an object and you can't mutate the object? Uh, depends on the version how. of object-oriented programming that you kind of like are familiar <laughs> with, right? There's a lot of flavors of that around these yeah. days. Okay. Um, but yeah, I would, I would take it on the like just the variable level, um, sort of like simplify it a bunch and just say, if I have a variable and I want to pass it to some other function or something like that, and that function needs to be able to mutate it, I can be like, hey, I'm going to pass a mutable reference to this function, right? I'm going to say, hey, you can mutate this. And the compiler knows that I gave away a mutable reference, right? Like somebody else is like dealing with that at this moment. And the compiler will make sure that nobody else is also actively modifying that at that point. So you don't have to worry about, say, when you're running uh, multiple things in a web server or something like that or handling requests or any of those kinds of things. Um, that variable is not going to get mutated by two different things at the same time. So you get these kind of like uh, compiler and compile time based enforcement of like how safe your programming language is. And also, uh, like we were going at before, um, when and where the memory is going to be both allocated and freed. So that gets okay. back to the performance, right? You get sort of okay. like this control at the language level. 
Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense too. And you said JavaScript does a lot of this like in runtime and mm -hmm. Rust has to compile. So is mm -hmm. that a difference too? Is that JavaScript can run like on the client side and it's doing some of this in the browser where Rust has to compile and then ship to the browser and it can do a lot of that memory allocation before when it's compiling? Yeah, so the compiler for Rust um, will set up everything that it's going to need to do. It will check everything. It will make sure that everything's in order, make sure that you're you're getting memory when you need it and freeing it when you don't and things like that. Yeah. And JavaScript has uh, more of a just-in-time compilation, right? So it happens in browser when you're running it, um, which can have different effects based on which browser version you're running in and things like that, right? Exactly. Yep. Totally get that. Well, I think I am a little bit in the gray area finally of understanding Rust. So not completely black yet. Like I, I get it, but somewhere in the middle. Uh, mm -hmm. I definitely can see like the opportunities where it's going to be useful. I know like Next.js is using it for some of their mm -hmm. build stuff. Um, some more WebAssembly-ish things are probably on the horizon. So it, it feels like a lot of tools will be kind of maybe rewritten in the Rust language. Do you happen to know anything about Go? And is there any comparisons you could make between the two? Yeah. Um, so Go is super interesting as well, right? I used it for quite a while. And um, I would say that it's a fine language. If you enjoy it and you like to use it, use it. It works. Um, but if you look into kind of like uh, Discord has a great kind of blog post on this where they were like, hey, we had something in, um, I think it was Discord anyway. I might have to go back and check. But they had like a, a production Go service and they were like, we are having these like um, basically garbage collection issues and they moved it to Rust and uh, it worked better for that. Now, obviously, like anytime, like we were talking about before, anytime you rewrite something, <laughs> you're not only just like making a huge decision, but you're also taking the knowledge that you had from the first write and the first iteration of everything and you're using that for the second. So like you never really get these like direct one-to-one -one comparisons. Um, and I would never kind of like, I would never be like, Rust is better than Go or whatever, sure. right? Like generic statements like that aren't really useful. Um, I like Rust a lot. I think it's a great language. It gives mm -hmm. you a lot of control over what you want to do um, without having you like deal with pointers and stuff on the level of like C. Um, and Go is also a great language, right? If it fits the use case that you want to use it for, Use it. I was trying to figure out and I looked up like Go has Golang. Is that the language that it uses? Is what's Golang the difference? Golang is the language, between... yeah. Okay, so JavaScript and then you could use Go and Golang and then Rust is completely separate. So I thought maybe Go was like Rust under the hood or something. Um, but um, no, it's Golang. Yeah, yeah. Go and Golang are the same language. Um, one of those words is easier to Google, you might find <laughs> out, <laughs> uh, which is kind of why that exists. Right. Okay. Um, I think it's yep. it's very similar though, like Rust and Rust Lang, right? Something yeah, yeah, like for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only reason I ask is again, kind of a dumb developer. Uh, I'll fully admit it. Like I've been writing JavaScript for years. I kind of get it. Um, I, I can make it do things. But when we start talking like language versus language, I'm not gonna argue with anybody because I, mm. I completely get lost. And I feel like a lot of people that are probably listening are are similar to that aspect. Like I learned this tool so I could kind of get to the end of something. Mm -hmm. My next kind of 
thing that I want to learn is Flutter. And that immediately tells me like I could learn Flutter and, and just know it, but I could also learn Go, which Flutter is kind of on top of, right? So or you I'm could like, do React Native or any other <laughs> JavaScript native language. Right. And and that's where I'm like, what is what is the thing about Rust that would attract me to like then build websites out of or, or web assembly coming out of it? Like that's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to like get to. And I don't know if this is a good segue into your workshop where you might break down some of those things. What's let's let's switch and talk about your workshops and maybe it would help me along the way too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when it comes down to building like web UI, right. And like we were talking about before your, your Svelte, your reacts, your HTML and CSS, right. Um, in my opinion, Rust is not going to replace that. Now there are other people who definitely write UIs in Rust with their own frameworks and whatnot, right? Like that happens. Um, it's just as a person who knows JavaScript, um, I'm going to choose the more widely supported, like, ecosystems uh for yep. doing that um so i would use rust definitely more on like if i need an optimization like if like we were talking about before if uh we're doing large amounts of data like streaming pivot tables into the browser or something like you can compile something from rust into wasm and use that for like data manipulation right and that can help you sort of control your memory usage in that website as all of this data is streaming in and things like that um and then the other place that I would be using Rust more often is CLI tools, APIs. Um, I even run it on AppSync resolvers for the Rust Adventure course platform um, oh, wow. and things like that. So oh, that was one of my questions too. So where is Rust Adventure and where can you find it? Is it hosted on its own? Is it on a platform? Where is uh, Rust Adventure? Rust Adventure uh, is rustadventure.dev. If <laughs> I haven't said that yet, um, but um Rust Adventure is a site that is hosted on Netlify and has a couple functions that run in Netlify functions and has the infrastructure for like API and stuff like that uh, running on AWS. So it's AWS Lambda, um, AppSync, and DynamoDB mostly, and uh, Cognito for users and stuff like that. I feel like there's a fun course that could possibly happen within here on like a Raspberry Pi. Am I wrong? Like mm -hmm. you can yeah. you can write in Rust on on Raspberry Pi, correct? Yeah. So one of the really um, kind of interesting things is that once you take this step from okay, I have JavaScript. Okay, I want to optimize my JavaScript and like write a more performant serverless function or something like that. Um, now you know Rust, and now you can start writing programs in Rust, and that opens up like. If you want to run on a Raspberry Pi, like very constrained environments are great environments for writing Rust and deploying Rust, right? You get this control over things like how much memory is being used at any given time, which is really important in memory constrained environments. Um, and like the other things that it gets you into or like the, the options that you have once you know Rust are you can now get into developing operating systems. Like it opens up new worlds, right? You're never going to really develop an operating system in JavaScript, right? Um, or Ruby or Python, I, I think. <laughs> but like, like these dynamic scripting languages are not the languages that are used in those uh, ecosystems. And, you know, Rust is going into the Linux kernel um, or it's on its way into the Linux kernel. Um, so you can get into as hobbyist or production level as you want to with Rust at this point. 
Um, so yeah, once you know Rust and once you're using it for these things that you like actually already have in production and whatnot, you can use it to get into operating systems or building a shell, right? Like building mm. a Z shell or something like that. Um, or like writing games and things like that. Broadens your horizons a little bit, like opens up, like you said, CLIs, like just making mm -hmm. your own like CLI tools around things would be really awesome too. Yeah, I yeah. saw that uh, on here when you have why Rust Adventure in your rustadventure.dev, you say that there's a free programming book available, the Rust programming language. Yeah. So that would be a really cool thing for people to check out. If you're interested in Rust at all, like go and read just there's a free book. So yeah, it's a, it's a really good book. It's very much like um, it's a long book and it's about the language. So if you like <laughs> learning about individual language, language constructs, like a little bit at a time, it works really well for you. Um, if you kind of like can't keep your focus through a book like that, and I'm like, I'm kind of one of those people, um, Rust Adventure is more video centric. It does have a lot of writing that is supplementary to the videos, but the videos are kind of like the main thing, right? Um, they're very concise, very to the point, very like, we're going to talk about this and we're going to talk about this inside of a real world application and how it applies. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. So you kind of walk the entire path with someone when they go through the workshop then. Mm -hmm. Is this, is this an individual workshop that you're, you're giving one-on-one? -on -one? Um, I have been giving it, um, one-on-one -on -one for development purposes, like uh, while sure. I'm developing the content, I've been giving it to people, getting feedback, that kind of stuff. Um, it's not really something that I walk people through. Okay. One-on-one. Um, -on -one. um... <laughs> and then, and then, uh, of course, they just jump on Party Corgi and ask you all the questions, anyways. Yeah, yeah. There's um, if you buy the Rust Adventure uh, like workshops, there's a dedicated Discord where like that is for asking questions about rust and me helping you with rust and things like that. Um, and we obviously do have the party Corgi, like using rust channel, which is open to anybody, uh, as party Corgi is in general. Um, but yeah. Cool. Well, I, th I think I understand a little more about rust. I understand a little bit more about your workshops. Is there anything else I'm like just completely lacking in asking you? backing and asking me um no i think i think we covered a decent amount um okay i guess if i haven't convinced you that this is a great way to learn rust then uh that would be a <laughs> and go yeah. to rust adventure I, to... <laughs> <laughs> I mean i've i've had it right down the road a, a couple times and i'm like i don't want to learn a whole nother language right now and so mm -hmm. it might be a interesting way to learn it so it sounds awesome cool well, I feel like it's time for our perfect picks then. And Chris, you have the first one, my friend. I have the first one. Am I supposed to go with one or the both of them? Oh, did you I put two in? Oh, I think no. I did. Oh, no, this is good. This is good. Townscaper is great. Oh. Let's, talk, let's talk about Townscaper. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me go back. All right, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, Townscaper is now available on, I guess, iOS and Android, which is uh, really cool. And I didn't know it was a thing. Um, but Townscaper is this little like um, this little like town design app almost where like uh, the whole point is building out like a city and you can do things like just click in different areas to create bridges or houses or whatever. Um, 
and it that is just so cool. one of the most enjoyable things that has like no uh, no like productive value i guess is the way that i <laughs> would that put is it. a like, beautiful 3d renderer like what is that yeah. built in that's ridiculous um i actually don't know what it's built in um they do talk about it quite a bit on their twitter account um but i mostly only see the like hey i added a new feature to townscaper like gifs and stuff and i've been following them for I didn't at even least know that over is, a year now so is like, it ios only or is it android ios and android now? and desktop oh, cool. So you can, uh, I believe, get it on Steam um, and possibly other places now. But I think I have it on Steam. Alex, can uh, you go it's back super and... Fun. <laughs> what is their Twitter? Is it at Townscaper? No, it's uh, the developer. Oh. At O. So I, I believe it's a single developer project, uh, wow. I believe. He has a couple followers. I think people are into it. Jeez. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you like post little Incredible. nice GIFs about uh, peaceful, peaceful town popping into existence yeah that was really cool i wonder if this is like sims kind of where but it doesn't seem like there's any gaming it's just kind of build whatever oh. you want it seems like yeah there's no there's no game to it right there's no yeah. and that's kind of what i meant by like productive right there's no point system there's no winning there's no like you just kind of sitting here and you build a little it's, town and... it's like lego <laughs> and you can yeah. just build whatever you want but it's in this mm -hmm. beautiful 3d world you can just well, click and drag and my entire pop stuff evening. on, and <laughs> that's awesome. Right? Um, that's and awesome. then you can sort of like export photos out, like people export photos <gasps> and then like paint over it and things like that. Um, oh my goodness! So like you you could build out like the background of like a two D platformer in Townscaper and have like something running through there, uh, and just like export it and paint over it and whatever. I always see people make things like this. And I'm like, wow, I'm not smart enough. This is amazing. This person has been working on this for quite a while, and they've talked a lot about like how they're doing what they're doing. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of thing, definitely go, go check, check out it out. Oscar, I'll have to put him in the link. Well, definitely. he is in the link because of Tom. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, I, I'm going to let you follow that one up, Brittany, because it's going to be tough. <laughs> Yeah, that is definitely going to be tough, but my pick is Felt Summit. So that is coming up November 20th. Um, you may see a familiar face on Felt Summit. I have kind of a big announcement coming, mm -hmm. and I have been pretty active in this Felt community for a while now, building some Felt tutorials and working with Felt Society, and we're starting a new thing. So I am very excited about it and keep an eye out, hoping this podcast will come out just before that if we can squeeze it in and um yeah go visit speltsummit.dev and or no i'm sorry speltsummit.com and check it out on november 20th hmm that's uh that's kind of interesting i'm wondering what you're gonna talk about but uh, <laughs> okay that sounds good um i can't remember if i perfect picked my my builder io one we did a Twitter space the other day um, between Builder.io and Webflow. And I think you did, but that's okay. Yeah, I'm going to let it slide. I got to pick it again because um, the more I check it out, the more amazing to me it is. And for nothing other than the fact it can get me jump started very quickly. Um, so you can now like integrate with different CMSs and actually get data that you're looking for um, in Cloudinary and everything everything that I use. Other than uh, they're working on Tailwind CSS, so hopefully they can they can get that part going. 
Um, but essentially you like drag and drop all these wonderful um, little components in and it can export out Next.js React components back to you. It's freaking okay. amazing. So you pick whatever you want and it just gives you the component in like React or in whatever framework you choose. Yeah, and there's, I think, I think it will take almost any framework. There's a lot. Let's put it that way. I, don't I was trying to get. figure out the difference between this and Uniform because Uniform is like pulling all those together into kind of a GUI for you. But this is like giving you the components and you can do with them whatever you will. And you can create your own too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. It's it's pretty wild. So definitely check it out. I, I think no-code solutions are probably going to take care of most of our jobs in the future so we can focus on things like Town Scraper that are hard to make or something <laughs> built on Rust. It's just uh, hard to make because you don't know how to make it yet. That's <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Very true. But yeah, so that's my perfect pick. Um, gosh, this Rust thing, it just it's everywhere now. And it's like all of a sudden, even though it it's is exploding and I hear about it every day from like a different avenue and it's going everywhere and it seems like it's got the potential to go as far as you want it to go. So that's the really cool thing about it is that you can use it however you need it. Yeah. I mean, I've been uh, working with it for a few years now and um, I really enjoy writing the language. Like there, there's a lot of stuff like we kind of didn't talk about, which is totally cool, but like there's the compiler and the compiler gives you uh i don't almost don't want to call them error messages because they come with suggestions of like hey maybe you need to write this piece of code at oh. this spot in your code because this problem is exists i have um, heard that that the error messages in it are really good that they like give you suggestions for how to fix it yeah which is actually one of the things that i like about svelte too is that like it like gives you the error message but it also tells you oh hey maybe you want to include this thing because it's best practice yeah, there's um there's a quote from somebody uh, that I am blanking on right now, but it's basically like um, we spent the last twenty years building like sufficiently advanced compilers for computers when we should have been building like sufficiently empathetic ones, hmm. um, and that uh, that is referenced in the Rust community a fair bit, and uh, I, I tend to agree with that. Where like yeah, like most of the most of the job of a compiler is surfacing like hey this went wrong here. Um, like I need you to add a type here or I need you to like, this should be a reference or a mutable reference or it should be something else, right? Or, hey, maybe you're making a mistake and maybe you should do something. And you made another good point too is community. And Rust seems like it has mm -hmm. a good community. Like several of the other good frameworks that are coming out recently have good communities. Party Corgi is a good community. Go join Party Corgi. <laughs> Go. I mean, community is like a huge thing in development. I feel like we get so much support from each other and we can really build each other up and the good communities do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I really like the rest community. It's one of the, um, one of the strong reasons that I chose to move forward with Rust as something that I used. And then also was like, Hey, you know what? Other people might want to use this as well. <laughs> awesome. Sounds great. Well, thank yeah, you for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We might have to uh, see how your workshop's going in like a year from now. See what you've added. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, cool. It'll be interesting. I have it planned out through the end of the year, but uh, as of January 1st, it's the whole world of possibilities. Awesome. Perfect. You'll have to make a, a new updated version for the next compiler that comes out, right? Like the next version of Rust. <laughs> I like won't actually. Oh, really? Oh, because oh, yeah. it'll last forever. It'll lock in. It'll lock in. <laughs> it will. It will last forever. Yeah. 
That's the beauty. I just I just want to let you all know I'll be busy for like the rest of the day. So. <laughs> well, right, tweet cool. about what you make, obviously. Exactly. Sure. We'll see you on Twitter later. <laughs> all right. Take take care, everybody. See ya. All right. Catch y'all later.